We've just celebrated Thanksgiving, and I want to say one more time that I'm grateful for each and every one of you who follow the podcast, who share episodes, those who've joined our communities on Facebook and Patreon, and those who've donated. I'm literally over the moon thankful because this was a long-held dream of mine since the book Talking Appalachian came out to share what I know about our language and our culture and not just teach about it, but celebrate it with you. It just took a while because I knew that I'd have to first put some long hours into learning how to do a podcast from hosting to audio editing to marketing and then balancing the time and a busy life to put the episodes together and send them into the world. It takes literally three or more hours after recording to edit one episode. If I do it right the first time, having said all that, again, thank you for the support that you provide, which goes a really long way. So this episode springs from another book that I published in 2011 with the Napoleon Hill Foundation called Success in Hill Country. Now, if you've heard of Napoleon Hill, then you've probably heard of the book Think and Grow Rich, which came out in 1937. And It sold millions of copies. It's still selling millions of copies. It's ranked as the 15th best-selling motivational book of all time. Successful people like Warren Buffett, Tony Robbins, celebrities, billionaires, credit Hill's 13 mastermind principles as being a primary influence on their own success stories. But what most don't know about him is that he was born about as far from wealth as you can imagine in a two-room cabin here in Wise County, Virginia, in a little town called Pound. His mother died when he was 10, and by all accounts, Napoleon Hill was a rambunctious child. But his stepmother, Martha, bought him a typewriter and said, you're not the worst boy in the county, only the most active. She said, you need to direct your energy toward accomplishing something worthwhile. Because I grew up, in the county beside where Napoleon Hill was born and raised, I knew a little bit about what it meant to be from central Appalachia, but I mistakenly thought you had to leave Appalachia to find success. So I decided to follow his lead and interview successful people with Appalachian roots who credit Hill and their mountain home place for contributing to their success. The people in this book include Mike Hilton, who was the president of NASCAR at the time, authors Adriana Trigiani and Lee Smith, Carol Dale, who was coached by Vince Lombardi and played in the Super Bowl with the Green Bay Packers, and Hill's own grandson, J.B. Hill. So I'm going to share with you an excerpt from, just to give you more insight into Napoleon Hill, and then I want to introduce Don Green, who is the executive director of the Napoleon Hill Foundation. The place that gave the world Napoleon Hill is its own success story in a lot of ways. Washington Irving, the author well-known for his stories, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle, even suggested in a letter from 1839 that the country might be renamed the United States of Appalachia or Alleghenia because the mountain chain is such a prominent feature that it represents the entire country. Though his suggestion never amounted to an actual change, Appalachia's ancient mountains have sustained 300 years worth of pioneers, revolutionaries, artists, and activists. In the past few decades, awareness and interest in Appalachia's people and culture has steadily grown. Appalachian authors and musicians have become so popular, for example, they now appeal to the mainstream public. Just ask best-selling author Adriana Trigiani about how Big Stone Gap, Virginia shaped her breakout novel, which was adapted to film. Think about Grammy Award-winning musician Ralph Stanley playing Carnegie Hall. 
As best-selling Appalachian author and Grundy, Virginia native Lee Smith says, mainstream America's curiosity about the region draws attention to the talents of its people. As bits of our culture emerge across the nation, particularly in the arts, Smith says that America is becoming Appalachianized. One of the ironies at work in Napoleon Hill's life is that he was born in a region perceived more as poverty-ridden and ignorant than successful. In 1883, the Appalachian region was still recovering from the devastation of the Civil War and its effects on the railroads. The Deep South, where the market for Appalachian products like livestock and food was greatest, was also ravaged. Appalachia's post-war society was fragmented, divided, impoverished, and violent, whereby an undiminished population growth ran up against diminished resources. That's from John Williams' book, Appalachia, a History. So the region was in a transition in the 1800s, moving from an agrarian economy to industrialization, primarily in coal. Since its settlement, Appalachia's been cast as this region that struggles, that's been plagued by problems. Um, So for a young Napoleon Hill coming of age at the beginning of the 20th century, symbolized a series of new opportunities, among them a chance to work with Rufus Ayers, a man he held in high regard. 18-year-old Hill wanted to work for Ayers so badly that he offered to pay the prominent attorney for the opportunity. I've just completed a business college course, Hill wrote, and I'm well qualified to serve as your secretary. Because I have no previous experience, I know that at the beginning, working for you will be of more value to me than it will be to you. Because of this, I'm willing to pay for the privilege of working with you. What is it about Ayers that inspired Hill to extend such a bold proposition? Perhaps it was that he served as Virginia's attorney general, or he was one of the state's more prominent attorneys, or maybe it was because Ayers was one of the most powerful businessmen in the region. Perhaps it was because Hill's community held him in such high regard. If you've been to the Southwest Virginia Museum here in Big Stone Gap, you have visited the house that Rufus Ayers built and lived in before Seabascom Slim bought it. When Rufus Ayers built that home in 1890, it cost $25,000. It was constructed of sandstone and limestone, hand-carved red oak, trimmed the interior, and in the next decade and a half, as he lived in that house, he would organize and run 12 businesses, maintain law offices in Bristol and Big Stone Gap, and return to his role as editor after buying the Big Stone Post newspaper. So Hill was inspired by Ayers at a young age. So Andrew Carnegie was one of the models of success that inspired Hill as he developed his own principles that would turn into the book Think and Grow Rich. Hill was inspired to compare his success with the experience of other people who've been recognized as successes in many fields of endeavor. And in collecting the stories, he came up with principles of success that he outlined in his book Keys to Success. Definitiveness of purpose, a mastermind alliance, attractive personality, applied faith, going the extra mile, personal initiative, positive mental attitude, controlled enthusiasm, teamwork, lessons from adversity and defeat, creative vision, sound health, budget for both time and money, and cosmic habit force. So those 14 principles are were my guides for the interviews that I did for Success in Hill Country. I wanted to know how the people assembled in those pages used those guidelines to achieve their own success. And so in the coming months, I'm going to share some of those stories and profiles with you. But what I thought would be interesting would be to let you hear from the person that probably knows the most about Napoleon Hill, and that's Don Green. 
Don Green is also a native of Wise County, just like Napoleon Hill. He spent many years in business, particularly in banking, and he travels the world talking about Napoleon Hill. He's written several books that discuss Hill's principles. He's widely sought after as a speaker, and he's held this position since 2000. And he's a widely sought after writer and speaker. He also hosts people from all over the world who have risen to success because of Napoleon Hill's own writing. So I want to make welcome the executive director of the Napoleon Hill Foundation, Don Green. That's very kind of you. Okay. Thank you. you know, I love what I'm doing. I never imagined growing up, I never write. I was, I tell people I was a student. That was a small A, uh, but uh, I enjoyed it very much. But I actually, when I was in school, I was thinking more about making money and I was learning what the teacher was saying. I never learned to draw except I doodle with dollar signs and make little columns of how much money I think I could make, how many Christmas trees I could sell during the Christmas and how much mistletoe and holly and and so forth. And I guess it led me to banking, uh, but, but I've always had a love for books. I mean, they, my family used to try to get me books that's just coming out. And so many times I already got the book. So now they get me a gift card, go online and buy them because uh, if you mention a book, I'm going to get that book and read it. Like uh, Ron Rash is a caretaker. I got that Did you book. Read it? I didn't read it that night. Because I had something to do. I read it the next night. And you like uh, it? yeah, I did. I gave it to my daughter. And of course, we love Blood Rock, North Carolina. We probably go down there half a dozen times a year. I have a season pass for Grandfather Mountain. My great uncle worked early up in his 90s. I like the way Ron did. He, he, of course, he's a terrific writer. I don't claim to be a writer. But he took, as you know, he heard that story about this well to do boy marrying this poor girl. And they had her murdered. And of course, he where it's true or not, it doesn't matter. But he took that and turned it into a different story with a different ending. You mentioned earlier that when we were talking before I started recording that you had put out 11 books in the past year. And that's part of what you do for the Napoleon Hill Foundation. In preparation for this podcast, I reread your book that you wrote. Everything I learned about success, I'll get the title wrong. Everything I learned about success, I learned from Napoleon Hill. So you write a lot of books. Do you want to talk first about what you do for the Napoleon Hill Foundation and how that came about? Sometimes we present an opportunity, and I try to tell the students, I said, when an opportunity is presented to you, are you going to later on say, gosh, I'm so glad I took that opportunity? Or are we going to say, I wonder what would happen if? And sometimes we only get the opportunity one time. Now, I had a, I've always had a love for books. And while I was working as a bank president, I was volunteered to go speak about Napoleon Hill. And I spoke to the historical side at Pound, and I listened to an audio tape on the, over our back. You know, it's a 15-minute drive. But I kept a pad, a yellow pad, by my nightstand because sometimes you wake up and you think of something other, and I'll actually write it down. But that time, before I went to bed, I took the pad and I wrote a letter to Chicago to the Napoleon Hill Foundation and I told them what I was doing. This is where Napoleon Hill was born and so forth. And so I get a letter back from a billionaire. He invited me to come up and have dinner with him. And of course, you know what all I was involved in. I had a cable TV and a dry cleaning business in Springwater and went to Dollar General stores and pizza places and uh, cable TV. And plus, I was on the board out here and I was in a Chamber of Commerce and cha- chairman of the uh, St. Mary's Hospital. I was into a dozen things. And didn't need it as such, but I thought it was an honor. 
So I got me a ticket and I flew up there, met him at the airport O'Hara. They had offices there that they let us meet in at the airport. And uh, he had a dinner. They had a dinner catered to us. And we talked about books. And of course, he has a love for books. Uh, he gave away thousands and thousands of books. He said, I swear, you know more, more about these books than I do. He said, you ought to be a board member. And I said, Mr. Stone. And I found out everybody calls him Mr. Stone, except Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan called him Clem. If you remember in my office, I got a picture that from, said to my friend Clem, Ronald Reagan is taken at the White House. I said, what do I have to do, Mr. Stone? And he said, we'll send you the reports and you just keep up with what's going on and we'll pay you travel expenses. There was no money for being on the board. So I thought I considered it an honor. When I started in the year 2000, according to the reports, they had 16 books. We got over 100 books today. Uh, So we put out a lot of books in the 24 24 years. And that doesn't count the foreign we have over 500 foreign publishers, 40-some publishers in Russia alone. When I started in 2000, there was no internet. I know the young people can't believe that because they've always had the internet. It was real slow because we'd write things out and they'll get the, the college kids work about 20 hours a week, some of them, of course, and type it. They type it and then I had to read it and I had to edit and I had to get it typed again. It's a very slow process. So that So everything you're talking about with the books and the publishing, Napoleon Hill's work is in demand still in 2023 and Think and Grow Rich was published in 1937. How do you account for the fact that people are still, that his work and his words are still applicable in 2023? He interviewed over 500 successful people. Amy, those things, that success is, I, I describe it as like gravity. Uh, it's just laws of nature and they, and they always apply. I mean, you know, having faith in what you're doing, having a purpose. I mean, that's straight out of the Bible. We must find our purpose in life. And of course, if you don't find a purpose, you're a drifter going from one thing to the next and never have a passion for that. This is what I'm going to do. And, you know, you've read Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Me. He wrote in there, he said, if you knew why you wanted to do something or another, you'll find the how. And the, that's what we emphasize. And those things have not changed. A teacher gave him Think and Grow Rich in 1937, as year it came out. He carved that book with him and the Bible everywhere he went. He had Think and Grow Rich. His Sunday school class, I think he taught it 60 years. His boys, they appeared to be 14, 15, 16 years old. They were probably at least 40 of them in class in Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Georgia, suburb of Atlanta. And uh, and he told them, he'd tell them, boys, now you want to carry your Bible and you want to carry Think and Grow Rich. You know, I part of, part of a little movie a few years ago, six or seven years ago. I had to go to California to film it. And then I went back for the I went back for the red carpet. But those people from Shark Tank was there and they was part of it. I know you probably watched that program. They've all read the book. I'm doing a podcast on the twenty eighth with Mark Victor Hansen, a chicken soup soul guy. He sold five hundred million books. Steve Harvey contacted us once and we wasn't able to work out, but he said he read Thinking Verse twenty five times. Draymond John in his books, if you read his books. He talks about reading uh, and thinking courage. I mean, it's it's all the time that I'm contacted by people because of the influence. It's just amazing. One of the speakers that came here was a guy by the name of uh, Joe Dudley, who died a couple months ago, about 90, I think. 
In fact, is I, I traveled with him some, and he was uh, he had a speech impediment. Grew up in North Carolina, a sharecropper. He came here and spoke. He still had it when he spoke. I was on stage and I saw some of the girls out there rubbing their eyes. He said the saddest day in his life when he was 17, his girlfriend said, Joe, said, we didn't, they were never going to get married. He said, I thought you loved me and we was going to get married. She said, I'm afraid our children would be retarded. See, she connected that speech impediment. But when Joe came up here, he was in a brand new white Cadillac chauffeur driven. I wonder if that old girl thinks what happened to Joe now. Because, <laughs> because I, me now? <laughs> he, he, actually, he actually went over into Africa with Nelson Mandela and set up a, he made beauty products and he set up a factory over there. And I think they had several thousand women working in it. And Joe walked off and says, it's all y'all's. I just wanted to help out. But that's the kind of person he was. But he told me he had read Think and Grow Rich over 300 times. Once a week, he got his staff together, his inner staff, and they would talk about one of the principles of going the extra mile or purpose or different aspects of it because he wanted his employees. And I don't remember exactly, but he had four kids but they went to like four schools. They went to Yale and Harvard and all, all of his kids. But Joe had a rough time getting through high school. He finished the bottom of his class. And his sister finished the top of his class, and he was two or three years behind because he had that speech impediment. We used to do some abuse shelters. I can remember the first one that was outside of Chicago. And uh, I was kind of a little nervous about, you know, a bunch of women. Hey, you know, what, what are you going to say to them? So before it started, there was a young lady, maybe, probably not, probably still in her 20s. And so she sat on the sofa and I sat down beside her and I said, I got to ask you a question. I said, you don't have to answer it. But I said, she said, what do you want to ask? I said, how did you end up in abuse shelter for battered women? She said, well, it's real simple. She said, when I was growing up and I was in school, mother almost told me, said, you find you a man that's got you a good job and get married. He'll take care of you. And she said, that's the way it went. She said, uh, he worked, he come home, but then later, he started sometimes, he didn't come home on payday, he'd come home drunk. I started fussing at him, and that's when he started beating me around. She said, here I am. I don't have no skills. I never done anything to make a, make a living. So I thought it was uh, was interesting that, uh, where that come from. So it's just another reason why young girls should uh, get a trade, get an education, something other. If they get a good marriage, fine. But if they don't, that they should be able to uh, build, make it on their own. Now, Don, you have Appalachian roots, just like Napoleon Hill. You're both from Wise County. You talked about, in your book, growing up in Wise County, you're the son of a coal miner. How do you think your Appalachian roots contribute to your success? You know, I did that book with your with the foundation and with you because... I grew up thinking for a long time that being Appalachian was going to be a hindrance to success, that I would have to leave to become successful. And I wanted to do this book to show young people that wasn't the case. And all of the people that I interviewed from Mike Hilton to Adriana Trigiani to J.B. Hill talked about how their roots taught them a lot about being successful. They never want to go back to, you know, those who grew up poor don't ever want to go back to being poor again but it taught them a lot of things. What do you have to say about that, about growing up in Wise County and becoming successful? We're proud of it, but but I learned some things. Uh, one of them was, you know, that our forefathers, they had hard work and whatever, but they never saw the possibilities. You call it a dream or whatever. All they know was just hard work, just hard work. Of course, I always read, Mom said it's going to go blind. I just absolutely love uh, uh, to read. And one summer, they didn't know what we was doing. 
me and my brothers, we were going to West Virginia, across the Tug River, close to Williamson. And a man from down here, he bought mines out, and he sent us three boys up there with his truck. And he gave us some wrenches and a hacksaw. And all we had to do was the mines had worked out. And it was it was not more than 40 inches high. You had to take those wrenches and take the bolts off. The rails were bolted together. They hauled the, you know, the carts and like railroad ties, except it's smaller still than what it's on a big track. And their job was to take it apart. And sometimes they're so rusted, we have to saw them off with a hacksaw. But that on one day, it came to me, Don, you raise up, you hit your head. I mean, you're basically crawling around the mud. And of course, the day they put an employer, they put someone in jail for working kids like that. But Hick was making about a dollar an hour. I mean, it's good money. But anyways, just something just came to me. Just It would be just like you talking to me. And I would just analyze. I guess they said, gosh, Don, them old guys like your daddy, they make a live and they crawl around and they get crippled. I mean, I don't know at the time his dad got hurt in the mines and one time his back was broke, he was on crutches, he couldn't even go back to mines, and he took a job driving a coal truck, and I remember mom walking with him to the truck, he crawled up in it, she reached him his crutches and his lunch, I never, it never dawned on me, what did he do for the, during the day, I mean, how did he get around, he drove a truck for four dollars a day, instead of working in a mines for five, but something just come to me, Don, them guys like your daddy, they killed herself to raise a family, but all these guys, these people you read about in his books, they're making money using their mind. I was bound and determined that I was going to learn something or another. I was going to learn business. I was going to learn. I, I was telling my cousins, I'm going to work in a bank when I get big. And I mean, you know, I know they thought I was crazy. Only thing that it related to me working in a bank was that's where the, that guy robbed the bank. said, why? So that's where the money is. My initial, I didn't get a job in the bank. I got a job for the finance company, which I thought was close at a dollar and 15 cents an hour. And basically my job was to go out to people's house driving an old 56 Chevrolet and asking them why they wasn't paying and collect money from them. But I learned to communicate with them. I mean, I would go out to you, knock on your door and, and Amy's three payments behind. I said, Amy, you and I got a problem. And you'd say, no, I'm the one that's three payments behind. I said, no, but I'm getting paid to straighten it out. If I don't get straightened out, the people that I work for, they're going to be on to me. So I want to help you. What can we do to work this out? Can you get one payment from somebody or another? And then I go back and tell them and you give you some time on the thing. So I learned to to be, and I was on your on your side. We both had the same problem. One of the high school teachers I was, this is just recently, was telling me the kids are so busy they didn't have time to take our courses. I said the four saddest words in the English language, and I'll use them in a book. I haven't had time. We've all got 24 hours a day and we do what we want to do. Don't tell me you don't have time to read. People watch television on average seven hours a day. We do what we have to do. I told her, I said, I don't mean to, to brag or anything, but my last semester in college, I was married. I took six three-hour courses. I took an English literature and a miracle literature, which was crazy with the number of books you had to read. But uh, I took six three-hour courses, and I made four A's of B and a C. That was enough. I drove a school bus after they took the cuts out. I drove $75. I pump gas on the corner out there about 12 hours a day or 14 on Saturdays and Sundays. And dad expected me to help feed the cows and the pigs and all on the, and do the farm work. I said, don't tell me you haven't had time. It's just that you haven't had a passion and have an interest to get something another done. I mean, when I drove a school bus, I kept a book letter on the heater. And if it was 10 or 15 kids get on one time, it'd take two or three minutes. I kept a pencil in my book and I'd open it up and read a page or two and then 
then close it back. I always had a book with me. And I mean, I took one to the bathroom. I had one when I was eating. I, if I had any spare time, I was into a book. 